Miles Creek is a bend in a country road by land and the flowing of Loch Lusa Lake into Orange Lake by water. We're four miles west of the small village of Island Grove, nine miles east of the Turpentine Still, and on the other sides we do not count distance at all, for the two lakes and the broad marshes create an infinite space between us and the horizon. Greetings, this is Stories We Can Tell, and I'm Jim McGinnis. Originally published in 1942, Cross Creek has become a classic in modern American literature. For the millions of readers raised on the yearling, here is the story of Marjorie Kennan Rawlings' experiences in the remote Florida hamlet of Cross Creek. Deep in the memoir, Rawlings tells a story of a trip up the St. John's River. These are some excerpts from that story, one that is dear to my heart. I hope you like it. Dedicating this reading to Sammy McGee, Keith Barton, Scott Matthews, and Tanner Rowell, and so many more who love this place even more than I do. Once I lost touch with the creek, I had had hardships that seemed to be more than one could bear alone. I loved the creek, I loved the grove, I loved the shabby farmhouse. Suddenly, they were nothing. The difficulties were greater than the compensations. I talked morosely with my friend Desi. I do not think she understood my torment, but she knew only that a friend was in trouble. Dusty said, we'll take one of those river trips we've talked about. We'll take that 18-foot boat of yours and a couple of outboard motors and put in at the head of the St. John's River. We'll go down the river for several hundred miles. I agreed, for the creek was tortured. Men protested. Two women alone? The river runs through some of the wildest country in Florida. You'll be lost in the false channels. No one ever goes as far as the head of the river. Then passionately betraying themselves, it'll be splendid. What if you get lost? Don't let anyone talk you out of it. The river was a blue smear through the marsh. The marsh was tawny. It sprawled to the four points of the compass, flat, interminable, meaningless. I thought this is fantastic. I'm about to deliver myself over to a nightmare. But life was a nightmare. The river was at least of my own choosing. The St. John's River flowed from south to north and empties into the Atlantic near the Florida-Georgian line. Its great mouth is salt and tidal, and ocean-going vessels steam into it as far as Jacksonville. It rises in a chain of small lakes near the Florida east coast south of Melbourne. The lakes are linked together by stretches of marsh through which, in times of high water, the indecisive course of the young river is discernible. Two years of drought had shrunken the stream and dried the marshes. The southernmost sources were overgrown with marsh grass. Water hyacinths had filled the channels. 
The navigable head of the St. John's proved to be near Fort Christmas, where the highway crosses miles of wet prairie and cypress swamp between Orlando and Indian River City. There's a long, high fill across the marsh with a bridge over the slight blue twisting that is the water. We drove car and trailer down an embankment and unloaded the small boat in the backwaters. The bank was a black muck smelling of decay. It sucked at our feet as we loaded our supplies. We took our places in the boat and drifted slowly into mid-channel. Something alive and potent gripped the flat bottom of the boat. The hyacinths moved more rapidly. The river widened to a few yards and rounded a bend, suddenly decisive. Death started the outboard motor. I hunched myself together amidships and spread the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey river chart on my knees and clicked open my compass. I noticed disconsolately lights, beacons, buoys, and dangers corrected for information received to date of issue. There would be neither lights, beacons, nor buoys for at least a hundred miles. Bridge and highway disappeared, and there was no longer any world but this incredible marsh, this unbelievable amount of sky. Half a mile beyond the bridge, a fisherman's shack leaned over the river. For sociability, we turned in by the low dock. The fisherman and his wife squatted on their haunches and gave us vague directions. We pointed to Bear Island on our chart. He said you'll never see Bear Island. Where they got a channel marked on your map, it's plumb full of hyacinths. Down the river ways, you'll see a big old sugarberry tree sticking up in the marsh. That's your mark. You keep to the left. The next mark you'll get is a good ways down the river. You go left by a particular tall piece of grass. The woman said, you just got to keep trying for the main channel. You'll get so you can tell. The man said, I ain't never been as far as y'all aim to go. From what I hear, if you once get through Puzzle Lake, you've got a right clear river. The woman said, you'll some kind of enjoy yourselves. The river's life is the finest kind of life. You couldn't get no better life than the river. We pushed away from the dock. The man said, I'd be mighty well obliged if you send me a postcard when you get where you're going. That way I won't have to keep on worrying about you. Death cranked the motor and they waved after us. Death began to whistle shrilly and tunelessly. She's an astonishing young woman. She was born and raised in rural Florida, and guns and campfires and fishing rods and creeks are, are corpuscular in her blood. She lives a sophisticated life among worldly people. At the slightest excuse, she steps out of civilization naked and relieved, as I should step out of my soiled shammy. She is ten years my junior, but she calls me with much tenderness, pitying my incapabilities, youngin'. Youngin', she called. It's mighty fine to be traveling. Forever after, we were never very long lost. 
where the river sprawled in confusion, we might shut off the motor and study the floating hyacinths until we caught in one direction a swifter pulsing as though we put our hands close and, and closer to the river's heart. It was very simple, like all simple facts. It was necessary to discover it for oneself. We had in a moment the feel of the river, a wisdom for its vagaries. When the current took us away that morning, we gave ourselves over to it. There was a tremendous exhilaration, an abandoning of fear. The new channel was the correct one, as we knew it should be. The river integrated itself again. The flat golden banks closed on both sides of us, securing a snug safety. The strangeness of flowing water was gone, for it was all there was of living. Lake Harney itself was four miles long, unmistakably broad and open. We crossed it in late afternoon with the westerly sun on our cheeks and a pleasant March wind ruffling the blue water. Passing out of the lake, we bought roe shad fresh and glistening from the Seine. The current quickened, the hyacinths plunged forward. The character of the river changed the instant the lake was left behind. It was deep and swift and the color of fine, clear coffee that is poured with the sun against it. It was mature. All its young torture was forgotten and its wanderings in the tawny marsh. The banks had changed. They were high. Tall palms crowded great live oaks and small trees grew humbly in their shadow. Toward sunset, we, sun we swung under the western bank at one of those spots a traveler recognizes instinctively as for the moment, home. If I could have to hold forever one brief place in time of beauty, I think I might choose that night on the high lonely bank above the St. John's River. We found there a deserted cabin, gray and smooth as only Cypress weathers. There was no door for its doorway, no panes or shutters for its windows, but the roof was whole with lichens thick across the shingles. Death built me a fire of red cedar. She sat on the sagging steps and whittled end pieces for our cot, and I broiled shad and shad roe over fragrant coals. The French fried potatoes, and I found I had the ingredients for tartar sauce. Death nailed a board between low rafters in the cabin from which we <clears throat> which to hang the mosquito bar over our cots, and said, Youngin, Christopher Columbus had nothing on us. He had a whole ocean to fool around in, and what do you call it, a continent to come out in. Turn that boy loose in the St. John's Marsh, and he'd have been lost as a hound puppy. We had hot baths out of a bucket that night, and sat on the cabin steps in pajamas while the fire died down. Suddenly the soft night turned silver, the moon was rising. We lay on our cots a long time, wakeful because of beauty. The moon shone through the doorway and, window, and windows, and the light was patterned with the shadows of Spanish moss waving from the live oaks. There was a deserted grove somewhere behind the cabin, and the incredible sweetness of orange bloom drifted across us. A mockingbird sang from a palm tree at sunrise. We found by daylight that the cabin sat among guava trees higher than the roof. 
The yard was pink and white with periwinkles. Death shot a wild duck on the wing when the 22 and I roasted it in a Dutch oven for breakfast. We lay all morning on the bank in the strong sunlight, watching the mullet jumping in the river. At noon, we went reluctantly to the water's edge to load the boat and move on. The river resumed its broad, quiet way as though it had left no tumult behind it. It had the dignity of age. It was not now in the dark hurry to reach the sea. At Wallaca one afternoon, we left the hyacinths swirling leisurely and turned up our home river, the Akloaha. I thought in a panic I shall never be happy on land again. I was afraid once more of all the painful circumstances of living. But when the dry ground was under us, the world no longer fluid, I found a forgotten loveliness in all the things that have nothing to do with men. Beauty is pervasive and fills like perfume more than the object that contains it. Because I had known intimately a river, the earth pulsed under me. The creek was home, oleanders were sweet, past bearing, and my own shabby fields, weed tangled, were newly dear. I knew for a moment that the only nightmare is the mas masochistic human mind. I looked across my grove, hard fought for, hard maintained, and I thought of other residents there. There are other inhabitants who stir about with the same sense of possession as my own. A covey of quail has lived for as long as I have owned the place in a bramble thicket near the hammock. A pair of blue jays have raised his young, raucous voice and handsome year after year in the hickory trees. The same pair of red birds mate and nest in an orange tree behind my house and bring its progeny twice a year to the feed basket in the crepe myrtle in the front yard. And the female drops a bit of corn into the mouths of her fledglings as much assurance as though she paid the taxes. A black snake has lived under my bedroom as long as I have slept in it. Who owns Cross Creek? The red birds, I think, more than I for they will have their nest even in the face of delinquent mortgages. And after I'm dead, who am childless, the human ownership of grove and field and hammock is hypothetical. But a long line of red birds and whippoorwills and blue jays and ground doves will descend from the present owners of nests in the orange trees, and their claim will be less subject to dispute than that of any human heirs. Houses are individual and can be owned, like nests and fought for, but what of the land? It seems to me that the earth may be borrowed, but not bought. It may be used, but not owned. It gives itself in response to love and tending, offers its seasonal flowering and fruiting, but we are tenants and not possessors, lovers and not masters. Cross Creek belongs to the wind and the rain, to the sun and the seasons to the cosmic secrecy of seed, and beyond all, to time. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. 
Until next time, this is Stories We Can Tell, and I'm Jim McGinnis, wishing you fair wind.